Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, Lord. Father, we thank you for your Shabbat and for the opportunity to come together in your rest and dig into your word. Father, I pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to receive from you, that nothing of me will be involved in this message except that which you have ordained previously. Father, I pray that you will uh, speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that we will leave this place today transformed uh, so that we can impact the world around us with the good news of Messiah Yeshua. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. Amen. So this week we read uh, Parsha Vayetze from Genesis 28:10 through 32:3, as we continue with the story of Jacob's journey and the very beginnings of the tribes of Israel. Last week we read about the birth of Jacob and Esau, the promise that the older would serve the younger, and the reality that it is through Jacob that God intends to continue the theme of the child of blessing through whom the nations would be blessed. But we also see, as Toby dealt with last Shabbat, what happens when Jacob tries to realize God's plans through his own power and his own might, rather than waiting on God's timing. Then we see Jacob's trickery ultimately cause uh, him to have to very literally run for his life, as his brother Esau has a very deep desire to kill him for stealing the blessing. And it is in the midst of Jacob's fleeing that we find ourselves this, this week in our Parsha. And there's a ton covered in Parsha Vayetze as well. Uh, we see the narrative of Jacob's dream of the ladder reaching to heaven. We see the first encounter with Rachel at the well, followed by Jacob getting a dose of his own medicine as his uncle, who tried to de delay Rebecca's leaving with Eliezer, tricks him with Rachel and Leah, followed by the births of uh, 11 of the 12 sons of Jacob and the very contentious relationships that develop between Rachel and Leah as Jacob's wives. Jacob ultimately serves Laban for a mixed bag of wages, which Laban continued to switch on him 10 different times over the course of approximately 21 years. Finally, Jacob decides uh, once again that he must go on the run, and he flees from Laban and Haran, running back to the promised land. But he does so in secret and creates even more drama between him and Laban. However, today we're going to focus on the very beginning of the Parsha uh, as we look at Jacob's relationship with the covenants of God and particularly the very first direct encounter that Jacob has with God. Uh, if you have your scriptures, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 28, beginning with verse 10. It says, Then Jacob left Beersheba and went to toward Haran. He happened upon a certain place and spent the night there, for the sun had set. So he took one of the stones from the place and put it by his head and lay down in that place. Here we find Jacob hot on the run. He knows that Esau is out for blood and he is confident that Esau is chasing after him at the, this very moment to take him down. But the Hebrew here at the very beginning of our Parsha tells us a lot about what exactly is going on spiritually with Jacob, as does this entire encounter that Jacob has with God at this point. Again, Genesis 28, verse 10, in Hebrew says, The Then Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. Albeit in the words Beersheba and Haran, uh, the, they, these are locations, and particularly locations in Abraham's journey, there's a greater spiritual meaning to this sentence in reference to the journey that Jacob now finds himself on. Jacob is running from Beersheba, which translates to the place of seven, or oath, or week, or rest. Specifically, this uh, idea is a place of rest and blessing. 
Sheva is the, the word seven, but also means week, as in seven days a week. And it is the number of completion and perfection. It was the seventh day of creation that the Lord rested from his work. And it is in the blessing of the Shabbat, the seventh day of the week, that we are able to rest from our work in his presence. Haran, on the other hand, literally means parch and comes from the root word hara, which means angry, burned, or dried. And these two locations are very important in the history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as a whole. When God called Abraham out to leave his family and everything he knew behind to go to the promised land, we often say that he was called out from Ur of Chaldees. But if you read the text, Abraham was in fact not in Ur of Chaldees when he left his father's household. Abraham's father had already, at least to some degree, began this journey long before Abraham was called by God. His father left Chaldees and ultimately stopped in a place called Haran and set up roots there. Why Haran? Because this was the name of his son who died. Remember Lot's father? Remember Abraham brings Lot along with them because he kind of raised them as his son even though it was his nephew. Uh, uh, Haran was Lot's father and the location proved meaningful to his father because of the connection to his son whom he lost. So it was from Haran that Abraham was called by Adonai and left his family and went to the promised land which is represented by Beersheba in this passage. Also we see that when Abraham searched for a wife for Isaac, he made it a point to make sure that Isaac does not leave the land of promise. He made Eliezer, his, his uh, most trusted servant, swear that he would never take Isaac from the promised land in search of a wife. Instead, that Eliezer would go to Haran himself in order to find a bride and return back to Isaac with said bride. In this case, we know it to be Rebekah. But Isaac does not take the same care with his child of promise. So after Jacob has, figuratively speaking, left his relationships with his parents and brother in flames behind him, he takes off running from the promised land. When I read about Jacob leaving uh, his family, uh, I picture, you know, the, the memes of like this, uh, the, the, the hero in these action movies that's like walking away from a uh, building that's exploding and there's the, the, the explosion behind him and his hair's like waving off in front of him, but he's like bolsterly walking down the road. This is kind of how I picture Jacob leaving as he's left everything uh, in shambles behind him and his entire family collapsing because of his own actions. So here the Torah paints this intriguing word picture for us of the place Jacob is spiritually. He is running from Beersheba, the place of rest. He's running from the promised land and the promises of God on his own life. And remember, these promises given to Abraham and to Isaac have also been spoken over Jacob already, right? He's running from a place where he should find rest from his problems. He is running from the place where God desires to dwell with Israel, a place of spiritual and physical fulfillment, a place with plenty of water, a land flowing with milk and honey. And he is running to Haran, the land of parchment, the land where, and I don't mean parchment like paper, I mean of being parched, not able to quench one's thirst. The land where he is spiritually thirsty, a thirst that will never be quenched. Keep in mind the idea of the imagery connection between water and the spiritual and physical blessings of the Lord all over the scriptures, and particularly the connection between waters of life and the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. 
We see the implications of this in Isaac's life in Genesis 26. As he returned to the wells that his father Abraham had dug, and Isaac redug these wells, ultimately finding continual contention with the Philistines over these wells, and, uh, which is a portrayal of how hard the enemy will work to keep us from the waters of life. We see this with uh, Moses bringing forth water from the rock in Exodus 17 and again in Numbers 20 when he does it all wrong. We see Yeshua's promise that we would experience living waters in John 4 as he spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well. Heck, we even see the imagery and connection in things like Eliezer going to find a bride for Isaac and Jacob both finding wives at the well. Even Moses found his wife at a well. And through these places of drawing water, the future life of each of these continued and their offspring. So it is a very uh, powerful statement to see the language that the rock chooses to use in relaying that Jacob is running from the well of rest and is running to the land of being parched. These, uh, uh, the, these are a, a much deeper spiritual reality, and it's being played out in this account of Jacob's journey as he deals with the consequences of his own sins, of his own failures. Jacob is the continuation of the seed of promise, yet rather than waiting for God's plan to play out in God's timing, he attempts to force God's hand by making it come to pass in trickery and relationship demolition. Now, because of his sins, he has to run from God's promises, or at least the symbolic relevance of the promised land in that. And if you're anything like me, I'm sure you can all relate to this reality in one way or another. We've all found ourselves walking in a place of spiritual dryness where we were spiritually thirsty, completely dried out, and couldn't find relief. If we are honest with ourselves, we can easily point out the situations in which we stepped outside of God's will, outside of his promises, in which we chose sin over righteousness, thus finding ourselves away from the well of blessing and in the land of unquenchable thirst. The key is to come to this realization much quicker, hopefully, than Jacob did. The key is to recognize why we are spiritually dying of thirst and to make teshuvah, to return back to the spiritual Beresheva, drinking in deep from the well of rest in the Ruach HaKodesh. Moving forward to verse 16 of Genesis 28, Jacob wrote up from, uh, woke up from his uh, sleep and said, Undoubtedly, Adonai is in this place, and I was unaware. So he was afraid and said, How fearsome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This must be the gate of heaven. While Jacob is uh, on this great journey of spiritual decay and ultimately redemption and restoration in the long term, he has this very interesting dream. He stops for the night recognizing he was tired and worn out from fleeing in great haste. He stops to, to try and rest for the night. However, he does something I've always found very curious. He grabs a rock to use as a pillow and lays his head upon it. Now, why in the world one would consider a rock to be a suitable pillow? I'm, I'm not really sure. Unless Jacob wasn't particularly looking to go fully asleep. But rather, as some might say, to sleep with one eye open. Remember, he is fleeing from his, Esau, from his brother Esau's desire to kill him. He is running for his life and is 100% confident that Esau is gaining on him. So when he stops to rest, he wants to remain alert. Yet somehow, even with an uncomfortable rock as a pillow, he manages to fall asleep and has this crazy, psychedelic-sounding dream. 
considering his fleeing for his life and what I would perceive as a desire to not fall completely asleep based off the idea of laying his head on a rock, I've always wondered if this dream wasn't something more akin to the situation Peter finds himself in in Acts chapter 2 when the Lord caused him to go into a deep trance-like sleep when he experienced the dream with the sheet full of all sorts of unclean foods. Either way, Jacob has this uncanny dream in which he sees a ladder stretching from the ground all the way up to heaven. And he can see angels going and coming down on the ladder. And at the top of the ladder, Jacob sees God standing there before him. In Hebrew, we call this location Hamakom, or the place. And Rashi states that Hamakom is, the, is Mount Moriah, or the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, where Abraham uh, bound Isaac upon the altar and where King Solomon would, would eventually erect the Holy Temple. So Jacob encounters God in the very same location that generations later the Lord would choose to make his place of rest among the nations of Israel. The Lord tells Jacob in his dream, verse 13, I am Adonai, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your seed. Your seed will be as the dust of the land and you will burst forth to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed and in your seed. Behold, I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land for I will not forsake you until I have done what I have promised you. But yet even with this encounter and even with hearing the Bakol speak directly to him with a promise of faithfulness, Jacob's heart was not really ever changed. He wakes up dramatically shaken. I picture him waking up in a, a frazzle like a kid waking up from a horrifying nightmare after watching a scary movie that they shouldn't have seen. Verse 16 again, undoubtedly Adonai is in this place and I was unaware. So he was afraid and said how fearsome this place is. This is none other than the house of God. This must be the gate of heaven. He encounters God, but he is not renewed or, or even drawn to repentance. He is instead filled with fear. And we're not talking about fear as in what Solomon discusses in Proverbs 9.10, which says, the fear of Adonai is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. No, Jacob is deathly afraid for his life because he has encountered the dwelling place of Adonai. He has spiritually encountered the Mishkan long before Moses was ever commanded about building it. Jacob recognized uh, he was in a holy place. He recognized he had encountered Adonai, but he wasn't really uh, ready to make any real life changes in his life. His heart was still hard, and he was still focused on his own ways, not the ways of the Lord. His fear was not a reverence of the presence of God. No, his fear was traumatic. It was, it was bone-wrenching. It was a heart-stopping uh, kind of a fear. He thought he was going to die because he encountered the Lord. But what was going on in Jacob's life to make him fear death and the presence of the Lord? And by the way, as a, a slight aside, if you remember, we also see a similar, loosely similar account with Adam and Eve after they sinned. When the Lord appears to them in the middle of the day in the garden, they go and cover themselves with clothing because they, are, they recognize their sin, they recognize their nakedness, and they are afraid to be in the presence of the Lord. But what was going on in Jacob's life to make him fear death in the presence of the Lord? Sin. 
Once the Mishkan or the tabernacle was built, Israel was responsible for purging all sin from the camps because sin could not reside where the presence of God resides. But here is the very sinful man, this very sinful man, this man who just robbed his brother of everything earthly due to him, this man of great promise who couldn't simply wait patiently on God's timing, but had to try to play God in his own life. He is a very fallen and sinful man and yet is encountering the presence of the Almighty, the Holy One of Israel. In his sinfulness, Jacob was completely overcome with fear. Jacob was afraid for his own life, which is something that at the moment he was well accustomed to considering he was literally on the lamb because his brother was trying to kill him. Rather than recognizing the glory of God and repenting, rather than seeing the, the, that despite his sins and failures, the Lord has sti was still telling him he wanted to use him and had plans for him. Despite Jacob being a human train wreck at this point, the Lord was giving him a unique and important call. Jacob still refuses to repent. Honestly, how different is the encounter Jacob has uh, here than that of the disciples' encounter with Yeshua and the Besorah? Matthew was a wretched tax collector, yet when Yeshua called him out, Matthew dropped everything, turned from his sinful ways, and made Teshuvah, and followed Yeshua faithfully. Peter was a very sinful and broken man, yet it was in his brokenness that Yeshua called him out, and it was from his brokenness that he repented and followed Yeshua. How about Paul? He was the supreme example of a human train wreck redeemed and restored by God. Yet it wasn't once he came to righteousness that God called him. No, Yeshua appeared to him when he was still sinful and broken. Yeshua appeared to him shortly after he was responsible for the murder of Stephen. And when Yeshua appeared to him and called him Paul, uh, and called Paul, uh, he made Teshuvah and became a spiritual powerhouse and a force to be reckoned with for the kingdom of Messiah. The same is true for you and I. We encounter God first not when we are doing everything right. No, we were likely like Jacob, wallowing in our own sin and depravity. Yet Yeshua called us to repentance, called us into promised salvation, and was responded, and we responded from our brokenness and were made whole. How much different could the story of Jacob have been had he simply made Teshuvah when he encountered the Lord at Hamakom at the place? What if he had responded to the revelation of God out of reverence rather than out of dread? What if he had repented and instead of running to a land of spiritual drought and parchment, he turned back around again to the land of rest and promise and drank from the well of life? But instead, we read from verse 18 moving forward, early in the morning Jacob got up and took the stone which he had placed by his head and set it up as a memorial stone and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, though originally the city's name was Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and watch over me on this way that I'm going and provide me food to eat and clothes to wear and I return in shalom to my father's house, then Adonai will be my God. So this stone which I set up as a memorial stone will become God's house. And of everything you provide me, I will definitely give you a tenth of it. Rather than experiencing heart transformation, Jacob doubled down, doubles down on his current trajectory. He has the awe-inspiring, life-changing encounter with the Lord. And instead of making teshuvah, he, as I believe, adds insult to injury and tells God to give him some more time. 
Notice how Jacob is attempting to cut a deal with Adonai. Jacob is a child of promise. The promise has already been spoken over him before he was ever born. And even after he attempted to steal the promise in his own conniving power, instead of waiting and trusting the Lord, here the Lord is personally continuing the covenant promise with Jacob as he has done with Abraham and Isaac before him. Yet rather than receiving it and walking in the, the covenant promise, now Jacob attempts to bank the promise for a later date. He tries to cut a deal with God by placing a contingency on his willingness to serve the Lord. He gives God an if-then statement. If God goes with me, provides for me, and protects me, if God brings me back to this place in Shalom, then Adonai will be my God. It, it, it is this deal uh, that is by far on so many levels worse than almost anything else that he's done. Jacob isn't saying that he will serve the Lord during the journey. He's not even saying he will believe in God during the journey. He wants God to meet all of these expectations before he even considers accepting the God of his father Abraham and his father Isaac. Imagine how much this conversation has got to be breaking the heart of God. But Adonai is still faithful to him and faithful to keep and protect him. Even though there isn't a transformation of heart, even though there isn't a legitimate change in Jacob for over another 21 years, the Lord is still faithful to keep his word to Jacob. I don't know about you guys, but I can easily think of countless times in which I have found myself guilty of the same if-then demands on the Lord. God, if you make sure this bill gets paid, then I will promise I will set time aside for devotions daily. God, if you get me out of this ticket, then I promise I will not drive like this ever again. God, if you help me out of this crisis, then I promise I will never avoid your leading me to share your word with someone again. And the list goes on and on and on. What's scarier is that in a lot of ways, I can empathize with Jacob here too. I don't know how many of you have heard my story before or not, but I'm uh, one of the few people that I know personally uh, that can tell you that from as far back as I can remember, I have known exactly what the calling on my life was supposed to be. Uh, I mean, I could tell you as far back as I, I could tell you stories that will blow your mind of things that have happened as God has revealed this over and over again to me. But when I, my mom was pregnant with me, there were not one, not two, but numerous people that the Lord used to prophesy over, over the pregnancy, over me, to say verbatim the exact same words over and over and over again in different environments at different times, the exact same words verbatim over and over and over again. He is going to be a great leader of his people. When I was a kid, people prophesied over me, and I personally remember hearing these over and over and over again, the exact same verbatim words. He is going to be a great leader of his people. Now, when I was real little and we were in the church because my mom was raised in the church, both my parents are Jewish, but my mom was raised in the church and my dad became a believer uh, as a, an early adult and became a believer in the same church my mom grew up in. And when we were in the church, it never really made sense, right? Why, why didn't God just say he's gonna be a great leader of my church? Why didn't God say he's gonna be a great leader in missions or in this or that? It was always verbatim the same words. He's going to be a great leader of his people. Always a very unique phrase. And at the time when I was, when I was real little, because we I was in like second or third grade when we started getting plugged in with Messianic Judaism. So I'm talking real little. When I was real little, my dad 
my, my family kind of rejected my dad in, in very severe ways because of his faith in Yeshua and the church he became a believer in. The church told him, okay, great, you're no longer Jewish. You're now a Christian. All that Jewish stuff doesn't matter anymore. So in what should have been the most important decision of life, instantaneously he lost everything. And so my dad was hurt by what he experienced with his family and he was hurt by what he experienced in the church and so when I was in you know kindergarten first grade second grade and I'm going hey dad look um, I, I know that you know we don't go to synagogue and I know that we really don't do anything Jewish but but we're Jewish dude why aren't we doing this stuff like we're, we're Jewish why aren't we living this life we had never heard of messianic Judaism before and my dad would get very angry with me uh, I, I found this little keepsake box that he had when I was a kid. Uh, I found this little keepsake box that he had that had his, his talit from his bar mitzvah and his keepah from his bar mitzvah. His prayer book had a, a mezuzah that he wore around his neck on a necklace in there and, and things like this. And I found it one day and I pulled out the mezuzah and all I saw was it was kind of a cool looking necklace, right? And I bring it to my dad. I was like, hey, uh, I found this in a box in your room. Can I wear it? And my dad like lost his mind. How dare you? That's my, that's, we don't do that stuff. That's Jewish and we don't do that stuff anymore. And he was just operating out of this place of woundedness and hurt but through all of this in spite of not having any knowledge or understanding of Messianic Judaism in spite of uh, not really having any connection to uh, anything outside of the church that we were involved with I still had this yearning for our Jewish heritage and so when we got plugged into Messianic Judaism when I was in second third grade and, and then growing up through middle school and high school it just clicked it was right like I knew this was where we were supposed to be I knew this was what God was doing and so when I thought back over the years of these prophecies being spoken over me that was always the same thing. I will make you a great uh, leader of your people. It, it, it always started to make sense to me as we got plugged into Messianic Judaism. Now, that doesn't mean that I wanted this calling by any means. So on this regard, I can, I can kind of empathize with Jacob. And for those of you that know me, empathy is not really my strong suit. I can empathize with Jacob in this because I ran from the calling. Like, my father's a Messianic rabbi. My father-in-law's a Messianic rabbi. I've grown up around Messianic rabbis all over the place, going to conferences and stuff like this. I didn't want that. I watched the headache and the pain and the anguish that people in ministry go through. And I didn't want that. I didn't want anything to do with it. And I ran from the calling. Now, I didn't run from God, but I ran from the calling. But no matter how hard or how far I tried to run, every time I turn around, there was somebody sitting there saying, you're going to be a great leader of your people. You're going to be a great leader of your people. Finally, and a lot of you know the story about me trying to go in the Marine Corps and that blowing up in my face numerous times. Finally, I gave in to what God was calling me to do and, uh, and, and chased the calling to become a Messianic Jewish rabbi. Uh, but one of the things that we see with Jacob is that while he's going through this running situation, he never really turns his heart back. So although I can sympathize with them in the mindset of running from what God is doing or empathize with them here, there's also a great failure at hand that he's missing out on the reality is that that no matter how hard i ran no matter how much i tried to get away no matter how much i failed or sinned no matter how far i tried to run from the calling i could never really outrun or run fast enough for what God was leading me to do. And even in my running, I don't know, I continue to declare the same promise and calling over me, and he just wouldn't quit and leave it alone no matter how many times I wanted him to. The lack of heart transformation in me, the overwhelming number of if-then demands I put on him like Jacob did, the absolute hatred for the calling, none of this could deter Adonai from calling me. 
and preparing me for what he had in store. So I can totally feel where Jacob is coming from. This makes me think of Paul, who, in, uh, who I'm sure everyone uh, who knew him growing up knew he was destined for great things. I doubt anyone could have predicted exactly what that meant, but he was a studious Pharisee. He was a devout and dedicated, he was devout and dedicated to his studies and to the Lord. He was a disciple of Gamaliel. He became a very influential leader in Pharisaic Judaism of the day, yet God had so much more in store for him, and even he couldn't realize it. We can see how Stephen's testimony before the Sanhedrin, as the crowd was preparing to kill him, began to soften Paul's heart. And just two chapters later, we see Paul have his direct encounter with Yeshua. He has his vision, his dream, like Jacob in the ladder, like uh, Peter upon the, the rooftop. He has this direct encounter with Yeshua in this vision. As a matter of fact, you can go back and read Acts chapter 9 to refresh yourself on the story uh, later on. What's really interesting is that while while God was working on Saul's heart for three days, while he was blind, he was also working on Ananias's heart as he called him to go preach to Paul, knowing that Paul had been responsible for murdering so many believers. You got to remember, when God called Ananias, he was already had this encounter. Yeshua already had this encounter with Paul. Paul was already blind. Paul's making his way to where God told him to go. He's got three days where he's fasting and, and he can't see anything, but he's trying to figure out what in the world God's doing. And then in this process, during this three-day period, God comes to Ananias and says, hey, there's this dude named Paul. I want you to go to this joint. There's this dude named Paul from Tarsus. I want you to go ask for him, and I want you to share my message of salvation with him. And Ananias goes, <laughs> No. <laughs> no, that's not going to happen. You, you, you know, I know who he is, so I know you got to know who he is, right? He's killed Stephen. He's killed all these other, and you want me? No, I'm not dying today. It's not going to happen. And the Lord says, nope, you're going to do this. Let me tell you what I'm already doing in Paul's life. And Ananias finally sucks up his pride and his fear and goes and does what the Lord tells him to do. So if we pay attention to the story there, it's actually kind of a two-for-one deal on heart transformation and revelation because God had to transform Ananias' heart from fear to trust just as he had to transform Paul's heart to be open to the message of Messiah. As we prepare to close, I'd like to go ahead and ask our worship team to make their way back up to the stage. For, for a lot of us, uh, honestly, for most of us, uh, this has probably been a, a pretty rough year. Whether dealing with a global pandemic and the economic and psychological effects that go along with that, or unprecedented fires, hurricanes, and other natural disasters, the craziest political season I've seen yet, and sadly it's still not over, uh, a hyper-sensationalized news media, and anything and everything else that has gone wrong, I've come to decide that this year is just the year of Murphy's Law. For many this year's many ups and downs and complications have made our faith walks extremely difficult as well. Perhaps you found it difficult to maintain discipleship practices. Perhaps you found your, your faith has been shaken. Perhaps you have suffered great loss and your mind and heart are a bit out of tune. Perhaps it has just been extremely difficult to get a play, to a place of worship and thanksgiving because of the state of the world around us. I can imagine that for many of us, we found ourselves walking in Jacob's shoes quite a bit this year. Maybe you've been teetering somewhere between Beersheba and Haran, between a, a spiritual place of rest and a spiritual place of being in deep spiritual drought 
and thirsty for the living waters that never run dry. Maybe you've been hearing God speak to you and reveal himself to you, but you are finding yourself somewhere between a place of fear for your life and a place for reverence for who Adonai is. And you can't find your way to, fully, to a fully reverent heart. Perhaps you're in a season of great pain and loss and uh, are mentally stuck in the if-then struggle. The beauty of the grander story of Jacob is that God never gives up on him. Even more so, God was well aware of the decisions and mistakes that Jacob would make over the course of his life long before he ever declared Jacob to be the seed of promise. Yet even despite his, this foreknowledge, God still de declared Jacob to be who the promise would flow through and he placed a tremendous call and purpose on Jacob's life. Over the next few weeks, we will continue to look at the journey of, faith, of the faith of Jacob, uh, how he traversed to become a transformed man of God. And we'll see that he makes many more mistakes along the way. But the beauty of his testimony is the reality that awaits us as well. No matter how bad we think we've messed things up, God has never and will never give up on us. Long before he spoke you and I into existence, he spoke promise and blessing over us. And he made a way for restoration and transformation through his begotten son, Yeshua, and Ham uh, Yeshua HaMashiach and his Ruach HaKodesh. So I want to encourage you today, no matter what you are going through, no matter how dry and thirsty this season may feel, the Lord is calling us to simply turn to him in Teshuvah and to receive the waters of life and to experience what true rest in him really is like. He loves us. In fact, he loves us so much that he gave us Messiah Yeshua to cleanse us and make us new. And that will never change. His love is overwhelming on us as he continues to call us back. And so no matter how rough the last year, several years, decades of our life have been, no matter how bad we feel like we've messed things up, the Lord is still in control. And he still loves us. And he is still calling us back into his embrace and speaking his promises of renewal and restoration. His promise of using us for the good and the glory of his kingdom every waking moment of our lives. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, Lord. We thank you that we can, in fact, trust in you and believe that you are in control. Father, I thank you that no matter how far we try to run, that just like as we see with the narrative of the life of Jacob, you are always there with us. You are always drawing us back to you. You are always reminding us of the good that you have in store, of the blessings you have already given us, of the love that you have poured out, and of the salvation that is waiting for us. Father, I thank you that you have renewed and restored us. You've given us an opportunity for transformation to not just be a fallen man or a fallen woman, to, but to be redeemed for the glory of your holy name, for the world around us to see the truth of what resting in you, of what experiencing your waters of life really look like. Lord, continue to encourage us as we migrate through the remainder of this year and await the coming year. Lord, continue to build in us a yearning and a desire for discipleship in you, for walking in a deeper relationship. Father, that each and every time we make mistakes, and, and, uh, and we will, Lord, but each and every time we make mistakes, that we will quickly see 
the error of our ways and make Teshuvah returning back to you in repentance. Lord, I thank you that you are merciful. I thank you that despite so many times in my life where I have deserved to be wiped out, that you love me so much that you have continued to sustain me and renew me and restore me. That the same is true for each and every one of us hearing these words today. And that promise will never run out. That promise is ever true. And all you do is call us to come back to you. Father, encourage us to stop with the if-then statements, but to wholly and completely turn our lives over to you. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua our Messiah we pray, and everyone says, Amen.